For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today, my guest is a legend and icon in the comic book industry, probably the most prolific writer in comic book history. Thousands of books, so many pages worth of comics, worked for damn near every company that exists in the world. Welcome to Epic Realms. Chuck Dixon, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. You've been busy. You've got you've got your YouTube pan, channel. You've got uh, all the comic stuff you're working on. It's you, you. Every time I see you on anywhere, I see you doing stuff. There's there's stuff going on. It's crazy. Well, you know, you can't specialize anymore. You got <laughs> to be able to do a little bit of everything. Nice. My introduction yeah. to comic books. Um, this is a funny small story. My my a friend of mine brought me. He he collected GI Joe for years, and he was like, you should collect comics. And I was from the baseball collecting. I had just gotten done doing all that in the early 90s. And I went in and I went with them and I was like, okay, well, I want something that's a number one, something that hasn't been done yet and it's just starting fresh. And I looked down the shelf and I went, oh, this is perfect. I love this. And I picked up Robin issue number one <laughs> going, man, it'd be great to find out this, you know, get to see from the start of Dick Grayson. And right. of course, little did I know <laughs> that that wasn't the case. Uh, oh, but that no. got me into that was like my first foray into comic books, which is something that you ended up writing. Um, so my question for you is, how did you get started into comic books? Where what was your first foray into into that world? Well, I mean, I loved comics when I was a kid. When I was a kid, comics were everywhere. Everywhere you went to the barber shop, there was a stack of comics. If you got sick. Somebody brought you comics to read. Uh, so um, I just fell in love with them. I can't remember a time I didn't read comics even before I could read. So uh, I, I just wanted to be part of it. Uh, first, I thought I could be an artist, but I didn't have the discipline. So I became a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I went to comic conventions, and I met a bunch of pros. I uh, saw what that was like. Met a bunch of other fans, some of, which, some of whom became pros. And I just started uh, meeting editors and trying to get interviews at DC and Marvel because they were the game. They were the only, you know, basically. And uh, eventually I got around to go into interviews, got a little bit of encouragement, but it was quite a few years before I did any professional work. Okay. And uh, just persistence. Ig persistence, ignorance, and confidence uh, were my, my bywords. <laughs> Growing up, did you have any, like, comic book heroes that, like, writers or artists or anything like that, that you were like, man, this guy is great. I, you know, I'm a big fan of X, Y, Z. A huge fan of Steve Ditko. Um, his, you know, Spider-Man, Dr. Strange run were hit me right at the right age. Right. And then uh, as I got older, I began to think about the writers and realize, Hey, somebody's writing these. 
And Archie Goodwin was really the first writer. I mean, Stan Lee was everywhere. He was like yeah, wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> he really didn't even, he was so prevalent, you didn't pay any attention to him. And then, but then Archie Goodwin, I began to pick out things. And I was so, wow, I, I, I like everything this guy writes. I really liked. So, and, and he was, you know, one of my first interviews at Marvel. So that was cool. Nice. That's really awesome. Did you, yeah. when you were growing up, did you, were you good in school? Did you do well? Did you, uh, everything you, but, everything but math. Uh, yeah. Senior year of high school, I made the honor roll for the first time. because like, I didn't have to take math. Nice. But, uh, I was, I was pretty good at everything else. And, you know, but you know, I wanted to work in comics. So where do you go from there education wise? And all my right. friends went off to college. I, a lot of my friends were like national merit scholarship finalists and stuff like that. But, you know, I just went off and did a bunch of, uh, you know, dead end jobs uh, to finance, you know, my, you know, every once in a while run up to New York to go, go, go interviews and things like that. So that was your big a little goal. bit of creative stuff. Like I wrote some children's books. I did some advertising storyboards, but you know, comics were it for me. Yeah. So that was like your thing right off the bat yeah. was, was doing yeah. that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, some your... situation where you know, I wasn't going to be happy unless I got into comics at some point. Right. Yeah. So. Your, uh, some of your first works was that, that was like, Conan and Evangeline, yeah. right? Yeah, Evangeline was like the first. I mean, Kamiko opened up in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and I lived within driving distance. Okay. So I went and pestered them in person and eventually got them to take Evangeline. And then uh, there was a bit of a dry spell. And then I got two breaks almost simultaneously uh, through Tim Truman. I got the Airboy gig at Eclipse. And then uh, Larry Hama started buying stuff from me at Marvel. And eventually I got Conan. So nice. Some of the things that people don't realize is obviously like you're like people look and they see the text that's in there, but you're writing more than that, right? Yeah. 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 Can you explain kind of how that, how that goes? And like, how did like, when you first started getting into it, did you realize that right away that you're like, Oh, I've got to write, you know, kind of this other stuff too, not just the text that the people see. Well, I, I had no idea how comics were written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was at DC. It was sometime in the mid seventies and Bob Kaniger was visiting that he, he visited once a week, even though he wasn't working there anymore. And uh, he gave me a Sergeant rock script. And when I read it, I'm like, wow, this is how it's done. And that's the form I use to this day nice. is Bob Kaniger's form and it's panel descriptions. I've got to describe what's in every panel for the artist. And then obviously the, 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 the captions and dialogue. And, uh, you know, from there, it's a collaborative process. You know, artists make changes. Sometimes they make them on their own. Sometimes they call and talk to me about it. But, uh, but it starts with a full script. The other way of working is the Marvel style where you hand the artist a, a plot line and then he basically does all the heavy lifting. Uh, and then you come back and add the, the words. But I, I, I've never been comfortable with that style. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of what are some of your early works that you were really that really like you learned a lot like before you started doing more? Was there anything that you said you got done doing and you're like, man, I learned I learned a lot working on, you know, working on Airboy or any of those? Well, working um well when I when I started on Conan, they encouraged me to work Marvel style. Okay. And I was working with Gary Quapis. And after about two scripts, when I was getting Xeroxes back, so you would get the Xeroxes back and you would have to place the balloons and write the dialogue. Okay. And I hated it because page after page of, of people talking and screaming and yelling, and I had no idea what they were saying. 
because none of that was in the plot I gave it. Um, and so I said to Gary, I said, let, let me write the next one full script. And he wasn't sure he wanted me to do that. Uh, and I said, no, tr trust me, the end product will be better because we'll both understand the dramatics of the story. And so that's what I did. And then he agreed. It, it, it made for a better story. And so I just never went back to the Marvel style. Uh, it, it, the only times I did it was when I worked with Johnny Romita Jr. on Punisher Warzone. Uh, and when I did a Punisher arc with Joe Kubert, I, I went back to the plot dialogue style because that's what they wanted. So Marvel yeah. style is they they kind of just give you the stuff and you just have to fill in the words and you don't know what's going on. Is that what I'm on, what I'm getting out of this? Yeah, well, you I mean, you might say, well, you know, Conan goes to town and he fights a dragon and blah, 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 blah. And then the artist has to do, as I said, all the heavy lifting. I mean, he has to pace it. I don't think that's right. And he's okay. doing a lot of the writer's job. And then when the writer gets it back, it's like, oh, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what's in his head. It's like. I mean, Kirby plotted a lot of his own stories and Stan yeah. Lee did the dialogue, but Kirby would write in the gutters, you know, okay. like the boys see a monster or, you know, she's, she's terrified of this so that Stan knew where to go. And Jack would even suggest dialogue that Stan would then ignore. But um, so, yeah, it, it, it's just, yeah, it, they call it Marvel method. I call it the Lee Kirby method, but everybody's not Stan Lee and everybody's not Jack right. Kirby. So right. It doesn't always work. But, you know, with Johnny Romita Jr. and Joe Kubert, yeah, it worked. Because, you know, they know what they're doing. I'm not going to tell them what to do. <laughs> so you also moved on, uh, not too long after that beginning, you did some Hobbit stuff, right? You did the Hobbit series? Yeah, yeah. After the Hobbit, uh, Eclipse Comics, uh, Dean Mullaney, who, who owned Eclipse Comics, he, um, he was always on the lookout for uncopyrighted material. And he actually, at the Library of Congress, found an uncopyrighted manuscript for the Hobbit, it was like a first draft. Okay. And so they started me adapting that. It was significantly different. Yeah. And, and then he worked with, he, you know, he worked on the Tolkien estate until they realized if they do this, we're not going to make any money. Yeah. And so they, they authorized us to, to use the authorized copyright version. So that's how that happened. That's cool. And that's it still really sells cool. around the world. It's still a bestseller all around the world all these years later. How was it when they started coming out with the Lord of the Rings movies and stuff like that for you to go, hey, I worked on the comic for that years before? Well, well the sales on, on the Hobbit adaptation blew up again. So, you know, and it got into a lot of foreign markets because of the movies. So that was cool. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of foreign markets, like, you know, in Korea and places like they they weren't even aware of Tolkien until the movies came out. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then you worked on the the Punisher. I think that's that it was a little bit after that you worked on the Punisher. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get on the Punisher. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but I guess '89 or '88-'89, and that was a, that's the only character I've ever really campaigned to write. I, I pestered Don Daly until he gave me a shot at some some inventory issues, and then uh, from there, you know, I was basically once Mike Barron left, I was the regular Punisher writer. How is that different than some of the other stuff you worked on for you professionally? Uh, the Punisher comes so easy to me. I don't know why. He, he, he's the only character I still think of stories for, even though I'm not paid to do that. Uh, you know, you read the newspaper and you go, wow, wow, Frank Castle would be there. You right. know, Frank Castle, you know, um, you know, he, he'd be in the Ukraine. You know, <laughs> yeah. he'd be in the middle of all that. So, uh, so I still think of stories. I just, I have an affinity for that character. So it was very easy for me. When you're putting together a character like that, 
how is it to know how far the line is based on, you know, the era that you're in? Well, I mean, like, um, a lot of that's personal preference. Like, I mean, a most famous, probably most famous scene I ever write, wrote, wrote with the Punisher was the torture scene, which uses a popsicle. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, his victim is convinced that he's using a blowtorch. Right. And that came from my own personal conviction that Frank Castle, he's not a sadist. Right. He's a soldier. He doesn't want, he doesn't, as much as he hates his victims, he, he's not out to make them suffer. He's just out to kill them. You know, right. so, uh, so that kind of came from me. And then, you know, with the comics code and everything else, you just sort of had to play it, play it like it was a 1950s movie. Right. You know, where, where a lot of the stuff is implied. But, but I was still able to write, you know, he's extraordinarily mean character. Even within the confines of the comics code, I was still right. able to write him as an extraordinarily mean guy. How was it for you getting to see the popsicle scene in the uh, Thomas Jane movie? That was cool because uh, there, there was a guy in the audience when I saw it at the theater. He couldn't stop laughing. And he kept talking about it all through the rest of the film to, to whoever he was with. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I got that, and that to me, Thomas Jane. No matter how many renditions they have, to me, I have there's a special place in my heart for the Thomas Jane movie for Punisher. No matter you know whether they bring the the new guy back, who's also phenomenal or not. Yeah, yeah. John Berthold's great casting. But I thought Thomas Jane did a good job. He was obviously into it. The yeah. only problem with that movie is they had him doing too much detective work. That's not the Punisher. Yeah, yeah. Frank definitely. just kills the first guy he comes across. <laughs> 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 I mean, the only reason he didn't kill Mickey uh, and he tortured him instead or tortured him instead is because, you know, Mickey was like a, a low level felon. He wasn't a killer. Yeah. And, and Frank knew that Fra Frank knew guys like Mickey from the neighborhood. So he wasn't going to kill Mickey. Yeah. So I read and correct me if this is wrong, because, you know, the Internet's always right uh, oh, that, it's, always. that it's because of the Punisher that you were seen and got brought into D.C., by Danny no. O'Neill. Is that accurate? No, that's not true at all. All right. So what did happen? Yes. How did you get over to DC? Um, Denny, it, I, well, it wasn't Denny. It was, um, I think Kelly Puckett was his assistant at the time. And Kelly Puckett called and said that Denny would like to speak to me about uh, working on a possible Robin miniseries. Okay. With the new, the new Robin. And I had been reading the book, so I knew what was going on. And, and which uh, new Robin is this? Tim Drake. Okay. The one that you discovered. The one that I discovered. All right. So, so uh, Denny, and then when I met with Denny, he said, I said, well, how'd you pick me? Because I'd never worked for DC before. And I didn't know Denny knew I was alive. And Denny said, uh, I read your Airboy, and I like how okay. you wrote a young character. I really like your approach. You didn't try to make him hip or trendy or cool. You just wrote him like a, a youth who was being tested, not always sure of himself. And all that stuff. And uh, so, you know, that's what happened. That's how he picked me. That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Did, were you, were, when you're working, especially in that era, were you still a fan just as much as you were a worker? Or was it like, now that I'm working here, there's no, there's no fandom as much anymore? Or were you still like, oh my gosh, this is Denny O'Neill, or oh my gosh, this is, you know, whoever. It's funny. I mean, I always liked Denny O'Neill's stuff, and I always appreciated it. But I idolized Archie Goodwin, mm -hmm. and it was it was sometimes it was difficult as as nice a guy, as wonderful and generous a guy as Archie was. Sometimes it was difficult for me to be because he was aware that I idolized. Him. Right. <laughs> and and Denny talked to me about that one time, and he goes, 
well, you know, why don't you act that way around me? And I said, Denny, I don't, I don't idolize. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I respect you. And I said, but you know, Archie goes back to when I was a kid, you know, and all that. Right. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, and I said, you don't scare me, O'Neill, uh, which he cracked up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes some of the artists, like getting to work with Joe Kubert, getting to work with Russ Heath, getting to work with Javier Sema, John Severin, it was like daunting. To, right. Because I grew up with these guys, drawing all of my favorite comics. So kind of yeah. like me right now is what you're saying is, oh. <laughs> but, but I've always been a fan. I'm still a fan. I mean, I'm still a big fanboy. I'm still a big geek. So nice. And, and now, Russ, Russ Heath once told me, he said, back in our day, we weren't like you guys. We quit work at five and we didn't think about comics after that. You guys just think about comics all day long. <laughs> well, when you love your job, you know, when you yeah. love it, I, that makes sense. That totally. Well, I also told him you're full of crap. And I pulled out a cover he did. I said, this is not a nine to five guy. Nine to five guy didn't do this. <laughs> I said, you're a little bit of a geek yourself. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> That's hilarious. So uh, for those listening and, and anybody watching the live stream, I also want to spend a quick moment uh, for those that don't know, Denny did just pass away in 2020 and, uh, I think that was kind of a, a sad moment for the comic book world. So I want to, I just want to give a little mention out to to Denny on that because that uh, I saw you post that actually, and that's how I found out was through your page oh, okay. when you posted it. And I was like, oh yeah. man, that sucks because these are the two guys that you know were part of my childhood and comic books. So I was I was kind of bummed out by that. So a little shout out to Denny there. Denny was probably, I mean, when he retired, that was the end of an era in comics. Literally, the day he retired, everything changed. Yeah. So he was like the last guy of that generation, really, that was running things. Right. Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to be a little selfish uh, on this without, now that I have you here, and sure. I want to bring up who my favorite character is, and also that came through the whole series of Robins, as I had mentioned, uh, Dick Grayson and Nightwing. Uh, you right. worked on the series of Nightwing when that first came out and worked with uh, Scott McDaniel, who I think was ahead of his time as far as art goes in DC. Uh, yeah. At the time, I was seeing a lot of the image style comics coming out, and it's like this art that was a lot different than what we're used to. And then in DC, you have Nightwing, who was like the only guy who had that type of a really cool, unique style of art, and you got yeah. to write that. And for me, I think the cool thing about Nightwing is you got to see him from a kid grow up to be an adult. And I was yeah. curious to get your your take on that and what your mindset was working on that, working with obviously working with Tim Drake and getting to work with that progression and him as an adult and the dichotomy between, you know, Batman, Robin, Dick Grayson, uh, Nightwing, Tim Drake, and all of them as far as their ages line up in their history. Um, yeah, it, it you know you read about these you read these comics, but when you have to go to write them. <laughs> it's a whole different part of your brain mm -hmm. and you've got to learn a lot and you got to make a lot of new stuff up. And I was given three weeks notice to take over Nightwing because initially it was going to be written by Denny O'Neill and Alan Grant. And that's what we thought for months. Okay. Something happened and they, they weren't going to do it. And um, my editor said, you know, could you take over Nightwing? You've got three weeks to hand in the first script. And uh, I said, well, what do you want? And he goes, well, you have to create a new city. And it's going to be called Bloodhaven. And uh, I want a Jackie Chan movie every issue. 
And so, <laughs> so I started thinking about Dick Grayson. I said, I don't want to do Batman Jr. I don't want to do Batman Light. I want him to be his own character. I realized Dick Grayson is already his own character, right. but here he's going to have his first solo book. And so there's, we're going to learn more about him. And, and the challenges are all going to be his alone. He's not part of a team. Right? So I thought, well, he's better adjusted than Bruce Wayne for whatever reason. Yeah. He's more casual. He's more blue collar than Bruce Wayne. And um, so I worked that into his voice, his speech, that he was more casual when he talked and more natural and more comfortable in his own skin. And, and, and remember, Dick Grayson was a natural because he was a natural athlete. He, he didn't, I mean, Bruce Wayne had to create himself as Batman. You know, Dick Grayson sort of slid into the Robin role pretty easy because he could already do all that stuff. Right. You know, the acrobatic stuff. It was just learning how to fight and things like that. But so, you know, that was my approach. And then I had Scott McDaniel. So it was like, wow, we're just going to go nuts here. Yeah. And with Scott, it was, um, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't break down his action sequences because I didn't want to tie his hands. So, so okay, for the next five pages, this is what happens. This is where you begin and this is where you end. And then he would do all the rest. So, if you remember that helicopter chase across the rooftops, wow. I mean, that was all him. You really got to see his acrobatics in action like you were watching in a Jackie Chan movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you, you add his ability to draw. He did those, you know, multiple poses where you would see each step of whatever, the, the leap or the slide or the roll. And then you combine that with Scott McDaniel's engineering background for those amazing backgrounds and his understanding of space and scale. And yeah, that was a magic time. Yeah, it really was. I'm going to agree, uh, but I might be just as biased as you. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that, I can say we worked real hard to make that book as good as we could make it. Well, so. it was, I really like the fact, and this is, I don't know, who was behind this, but I really liked the glossy pages. So many others still had the, the newspaper pages and those had those nice little glossy pages and it made the yeah. art pop so much more. Uh, yeah. My next question for you is going to be, we're, we're talking about the Batman universe right now, but you had so many giant overarching multiple comic line storylines. You had, you know, between Nightfall and Contagion, Cataclysm, uh, one of my favorites, which is underestimated, the Brotherhood of the Fist. How do you, how do you, how do you manage? Because you've got all these different artists and all of these different people working on. This is a Catwoman comic, and these are the people working on that. And here's the, right. you know, the artist for Nightwing, and here's this, and this is when these get released, and we got to tell a storyline that comes out chronologically throughout all of them, and right. crosses over. How do you pull that off? Well, well, Denny Pick guys, you know. Uh, well, he didn't know if I was, but he knew Doug Bench was, he knew Alan Grant was, you know, just dedicated to this stuff. You know, they were, they, you know, we'd all play nice with each other and we knew how to meet deadlines and we were interested in the characters. We were very earnest about doing good work. And, um, and then it was up to Denny to, and Denny and his assistant editors to sort of uh, help map everything out. And of course we did this at like, we did them at bat summits. We would go away to some resort spend a few days uh, just working all day long with, with, I, I think at one point we we're up to like a half dozen whiteboards. Wow. And just laying stuff out issue by issue by issue. So everybody knew where the story had to begin and what the important part of that issue was, what part it played in the overarching story. 
And so, um, and we, we were, we were good at that. We, we were, we, you know, and we all, we all wanted to produce the most quality product we could. Uh, and Denny was very much about that, particularly on nightfall. Then he didn't want it to be a forgettable stunt as he called it. Uh, he wanted it to be an event that would have some legs that people would remember years later. Right. That also importantly was intrinsic to who Batman was. It wasn't just a story with Batman in it. It was like a story that only could be a Batman story. And uh, so that's, that's how it was done, you know, and, but it sounds like hard work, but it wasn't. I mean, I enjoyed every minute of it. I think everybody else did too. Yeah. And it paid off. Obviously you got somebody yeah. who, like me who might've only read one or two of them and go, well, I have to get the next storyline. So I got to get the, I got to get the Catwoman. I got to get the birds of prey. I got to get the, you know, whatever next part of the storyline. Otherwise yeah, I'm going to miss out. So. Yeah. I remember a meeting when we were planning the vengeance of Bane special, the first vengeance of Bane. And Denny's concern was that it, it had to be on the, it had to be on the newsstand because newsstand was still important then. And we didn't want to leave the readers behind that were newsstand readers. And I remember a whole morning was spent lining that up with uh, printing schedules and everything else. So uh, to make sure that that would go out with the news agencies. So is that kind of, you know, that kind of thought went into all of it. A lot of moving parts. Yeah. Like I said, it was all fun. Speaking of Bane, you helped create Bane. Yeah. How is it to go to, to see, you know, big screen Bane show up and you're like, I created that character or, you know, in the the animated series. Behind me, that's all Bane action figures. Yeah. That's, that's only like 25% of the ones that I have, you know? Yes. It's nuts. It's a household name. Everybody knows who he is. You go like this, do the funny voice. Everybody knows who you are. <laughs> and weird. you can say, I made that. That's me. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm that guy. So it's very strange. Is the, What was it like to come up? And, and he's not the only character you've come up with uh, on your own. What is it like to come up with you know, unique characters? Do you have a process? Do you go, I just need something to fit the storyline? Uh, how does that come up and how, and do you get vetoed when, when you come up with a character? Oh yeah. 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 It's like, Oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I sometimes the, the character just serves a plot line, like the spoiler. I, I never meant for the spoiler to have any life beyond that first two issue arc she was in. I just need, I just like the idea of a supervillain having a rebellious daughter. And, but I never thought, and then readers fell in love with her. We, we go back when we got letters, we get, got hundreds of letters saying when, when are we going to see her again? Right. Uh, and and then something like Bane, it was the opposite where he, he had to be constructed so that he took off. So the readers related to him uh, because Nightfall basically rested on his shoulders. Yeah. Uh, if he was a lousy villain, Nightfall would have been a joke. Right. Uh, so uh, he had to click. And that took a lot of work thinking about, you know, you know, with any villain, you want to make them somewhat relatable, somewhat sympathetic, um, you know, so that they're not just evil for evil's sake. In other right. words, there's a reason they have clear motivations for why they're doing what they're doing, uh, even though it's nasty. What, um, when you're working on characters like that, specifically the villains, uh, some of them, you know, a lot of, a lot of villains have different, like you say, they have different characteristics where they're, you know, they're not always necessarily bad, but then right. you have to deal with ones that are necessarily just evil for evil's sake or crazy for evil's sake. Uh, right. How do you have to deal with that to put put that in a reader's lap to go, okay, but you still have to like 
look at this character in this kind of a light? How do you how do you deal with that, especially when it's somebody else's character? Well, I mean, if you're writing someone like the Joker, I mean, there's right. nothing really likable at the Joker. There's nothing redeeming or right. sympathetic. Um, he, he's he's sadistic. Uh, he even tries to garner sympathy, but it, it's it's just another weapon right. in his quiver. Um, and so when you write Joker, you, you've got to have a really good story. You know, there has to be some high stakes or some sort of twist. And I've said this many times, my favorite kind of Joker story is where Batman catches up with him and, and beats the daylight out of him. So that's always been my favorite kind of Joker story. But I also like the kind of stories, I've, I've written a few of these where it's a situation where Batman can't beat the daylights out of him because he's in Arkham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's already captured. Uh, so, so Batman always finds a way to psychologically mess with him. And I like the idea that, you know, Joker thinks he's so with it. He's so Hannibal Lecter. He's so on top of everything. But Batman bests him even in a battle of wits. And Joker right. always comes out the loser. But like I said, it's got to be an interesting story. It can't just be Joker kills everybody and laughs a lot. You know, yeah. It doesn't work. Right. You moved on after DC. Like, you worked on a lot of stuff in DC. Uh, but then you moved on. You, you went back and did uh, some stuff in Marvel. And... You you ended up working on a little bit of Spider Man. I did. Did you? No, I think there's a couple of you. You didn't work on the Amazing Spider Man. No, no, I never worked on Spider Man. Wow. Once I got to Spider Man, was a couple issues of What If. I you see, and there we go again. The internet ruins me. The internet lies. They lie. Those darn liars. It's a web of deception. Don't believe anything. No, no, I've never, I've never worked on a Spider Man title. Well, now that that just throws my whole thing. I saw it in like three different places. I'm like, well, this has to be true now. This has to be true. And now I'm like, if it's if it's not true, then well, hopefully people don't throw me under the bus. And they yeah, did. I did a what? I did a what if where Punisher kills him, but no, I didn't. <laughs> well, what other stuff did you work on at Marvel after uh, the fact, or even before the fact that I have? We well, I, I did. Yet. I did. Well, Savage Sword of Conan, I did for like five years. I did Alien Legion. Mm-hmm. I did two years on Moon Knight. Um, I did, um, I did, like I said, a bunch of what ifs. Uh, I did a series called Code of Honor. It was about a. It was supposed to be the follow up to Marvels. Uh, okay. This time, it was from the point of view of a New York police officer. And did uh, you work? On, did you work on Marvel Knights? Yeah, yeah. I had a uh, like a fifteen issue run on Marvel Knights, the ensemble group. Okay. Uh, Punisher, Daredevil, Black Widow with with Ed Moretto. Yeah, that was fun. And that was a lot of fun. Did any of that? Does it like? I I don't I don't know that series too much other than the Netflix series and you know some of the individual characters. Um, right. How how much of that that you worked on is kind of what they put on when they did the series? Um, yeah, I don't know. They they um, the only thing I've seen that they've used the mine that I know they used the mine was Rosalie Carbone. She was the like the mafia princess. Okay, they used her. Um, and they sent me a couple of checks. <laughs> hey, whatever pays the bills, right? That's how I know they used it. So. <laughs> uh, our live stream chat is just laughing at me because I screwed up. It's my it's my first informational wrong, guys. My first informational wrong. Give me. Hey, it's give one me, of the it's, it's one of the few characters I haven't written. I mean, Spider Man, Wolverine. I've never been anywhere near either one. Are those are those characters that you'd like to write at some point? Uh, I might want to write some Spider Man. Wolverine doesn't really interest me all no. that much. 
It's been, you know, it's, it's not that he's not a good character. It's, I think other people write it better than I would. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. You uh, you also did some GI Joe. Uh, the, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> right. Am I am I sure here? Do I no, take no, this no. paper? I quite a bit of GI Joe. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I've seen issues with your name on it, so it better yeah, no, not be no. a Photoshop. That's for, that's for sure. No, I was yeah, I was following in Larry Thomas' shadow there for a little while. So, um, and that was the IDW stuff, correct? When they when they kind of rebooted yeah, I, the series, I, I did a few issues with Devils Do, and then when IDW got it, they they reached out for me. Uh, so how, I, actually, I reached out for them, and they said, "No, no, don't worry, we were going to call you." <laughs> uh, how was it for you working on on something like that? Because there, that's you know, you're not. It's not a cover story of one character. You've got an ensemble group of cast in a GI Joe. It's not just like it's not just Snake Eyes running around. You've got a whole bunch of people to have to cover in a storyline like that. Well, well, I had followed the book. I mean, Larry Hama was my editor on Savage Sword, and okay. uh, I had followed the book, and then getting to know Larry. When you get to know Larry, you really understand G.I. Joe when you get to know Larry and what it's about. You know, there's all this subtext that he doesn't spell out, but it's there. And uh, so I knew it's about it's, it's about showing the United States military in a good light. I have no problem with uh, and, and the loyalty and, the you know, the brotherhood and the sisterhood of people in combat and all the rest of it. And uh, and so going into it, I had his blessing, which was good. Uh, he told me that. Um, of all the IDW stuff, mine was the only stuff he read. Uh, so he uh, and he, you know, so I knew I had his blessing. But but what was cool about it was that they said they wanted a reboot, and I said, I you know, I didn't tell them this. I said I don't want to do a reboot. I just want to do, I want to do it the way Larry would have done it if he had the whole universe in front of him from the start. Right. Because you have to remember when Larry was writing the book, he was tied to toy releases. So he had to work those toys into a particular issue at a particular time. Okay. And it's amazing that the book was as cool as it was with all those restrictions, but he was so into it. He was so earnest that he turned it into a classic comic book, despite, you know, basically being a toy tie-in book. Right. Uh, But he didn't treat it like it was a toy tie-in book. He treated it like it was his universe, his rules. And he worked all the stuff in that Hasbro wanted worked in. Well, I wasn't lumbered with any of that. Right. Uh, I could bring in whatever I want, whenever I wanted it. So whenever it made dramatic sense. Right. And I mean, obviously, it, you know, it was a cartoon and everything. And it seemed yeah. yours seemed to con- basically pick up where it left off. And it didn't it did justice to the originals. Uh, everybody. I know a handful of people that are big G.I. Joe comic book fans, and they were very excited when that came out. And all they could do is tell me about how much it followed the followed the old stories or the characters, you know, kept them all the way they were, their personalities, and they could just they felt like they didn't miss a beat, and they were very excited for that. So yeah, I, was, I, I I had no interest in changing anything or making them, you know, my version of the GI Joe. I just right. wanted to make them, you know, my my version of Larry Thomas GI Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you worked on some other other stuff. In that in IDW, correct? Was that or was that the only one? Uh, I did a, a, a couple of Transformers things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were usually set in the 1800s. They were fun, and uh, yeah, I, well, I did Winter World, which is a series I created on my own. Okay, um, and I'm sure I worked on a bunch of other stuff for that. One. Right, and you did some Wildstorm stuff. Yeah, yeah, I did Nightmare on Elm Street. I did Claw the Unconquered. I did Team Seven, Team Zero. You know, every once in a while, the phone would ring. It would be that. <laughs> I, I gotta ask: if you bring up the call, 
how was it that you do call and you and, and you're not like okay how do I not make this Conan? Um, well, call I worked on at Marvel. Claw I, I said Claw or Claw. Uh, how do you make? Yeah, Claw was um, yeah, it's a Conan uh, knockoff. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, I made it more about the the threat. I mean, at the at the end of my first miniseries, and there were supposed to be more of them, but there weren't. At the end, he's defeated. He's not Claw the Unconquered. He's basically conquered. Right. Uh, and and uh, it has this real downer ending. You know, it's a real Cormac McCarthy ending, which a lot of readers are like, why'd you do that? I said, like, well, because I was supposed to do another follow-up miniseries uh, to get him out of that problem. But uh, but I wanted to have a, a a barbarian fantasy thing where the stakes were really high. Right. And, and he wasn't up to it. That's that's sad. It would have been an he's, interesting. He's a lot meaner and nastier than Conan. So right. He's not a nice guy. Well, it would have been an interesting continuing story after he was conquered. The whole, you know, well, I was defeated, and then you know, becoming humbled and learning from that, and you know, because characters characters with the flaws are great characters, especially ones that were defeated, as you already know with uh, with the Nightfall series. But that's yeah, especially because his defeat was he's taken away into an all another dimension that's ruled by like like Lovecraftian monsters, and he's enslaved. I thought, wow, you know, that's going to be a high hill to climb. You right. Know, if he wins out in that one, boy, he he really is a great hero. Yeah. And that was the point of it, but never never got there. <laughs> uh, did any of the series like any? like animated series or shows did you get to work on or with any of those kind of shows you mean like batman animated a- any of them batman or teen titans huh. or did you like uh consult or do any kind of work with any of those no nah, there's like a brain blood barrier between comics and any other media where <laughs> they don't really want you part of it i mean De- denny got to write a couple of episodes of the batman animated series because he was a member of the writers guild because he had written some television okay the rest of us were barred. They, they they adapted one of my comics, but I wasn't allowed to work on it. And then, because uh, I remember calling when I heard about Batman Beyond, uh, it was called Forever Night when they when I heard about it. And uh, and they basically politely told me that, no, I, I couldn't work on it because I wasn't a member of the guild. That's uh, so, crazy. But there was a lot of uh, creative byplay between Batman and the animated series and what we were doing. Yeah. We, we knew everybody and they visited the DC offices a lot and they borrowed from us and we borrowed from them. So. That's, that's kind of crazy though. That they wouldn't like, you're like one of the guys and they're like, no, talk to no, it's, like, it's like anybody can write a comic book, but anything else? No, 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 no. Well, do you have an agent? Do you have, you know, it's like, wow. That's ridiculous. Uh, so you're currently working uh, with Arkhaven comics. Yeah. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about Arkhaven Comics, kind of how that came about and your involvement with that? Well, first we were doing print comics, uh, and, we're, and we still do print comics, but for the most part now we're doing Arctoons, which is a free digital website, comics, dozens and dozens of properties up there. Like I said, they're free. They're high res. You can read them on any device. They're, they're such high resolution. You can read them on the big screen in your family room, and they're crystal clear. Uh, but, uh, people tell me they work best on the phone. I, I don't read comics on the phone, but they tell me they work really well on the phone. Right. Uh, but I'm doing a, a number of series for that and a lot of different genres. Uh, my two favorites are something big, which is an alien invasion story combined with a heist story. Uh, a, uh, career criminal decides that the aliens have taken over the earth, but that's no reason why he can't steal from them. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, 
the other one is My Sister Suprema. It's about a little boy who dreams of being a superhero. He finds a website that promises that if he follows this formula, he'll be a superhero. He puts the formula together successfully, but unfortunately, it's his sister who gets his big sister who gets the powers, not him. Oh, and no. She has no interest in being a superhero. And so he has to live vicariously through her, um, her, her exploits. Wow. So right now they're my, my two favorites, but I do, a, I do a lot of stuff there and there's, there's every genre, there's fantasy, there's action, there's espionage, there's war, uh, romance, humor, you know, so arcaven.com is where you want to look. Awesome. So anybody listening, arcaven.com, check that out. That's going to be super awesome. Uh, just to be able to get comics that you can read without spending six arms and a leg. Yeah, uh, is just fascinating. Is there there's like is there like a Patreon or anything like that that they can that people can follow or, or get in on? Well, to well, help support. Were, it? Well, you can subscribe. There's paid subscriptions. I think there's some tchotchkes and stuff they'll give you. And then also, if you just want to support me, uh, you can go to um, Patreon Arcaven, and that's okay. not that's just my account, okay. uh, and that's yeah. how I pay my artists on on something big and my sister Suprema. Uh, and it's like, a, you know, a dollar, three dollars, five dollars, you know, whatever. And it, it helps me pay these guys uh, so we can keep this going. And uh, someday maybe I'll pay myself. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Levon Cade. Uh, Levon Cade, um, basically I turned to writing novels in addition to comics. I never wanted to be a novelist. Right. I, would, I just want to be a comic book writer. But I wasn't getting a lot of comic work. And I was looking at what ebooks were doing on Amazon. I thought, well, let me give it. Let me give that a shot. Right. So I created Levon Cade. He's a, um, you know, he's a vigilante crime fighter. Uh, he kind of scratches my Punisher itch, but he's, he's not like Frank Castle. He's an Alabama boy. He's got a young daughter that he's raising on his own. And, uh, but like Frank Castle, he can't stay out of trouble. He keeps helping people. And then of course the people that uh, he helped them against aren't really happy with him. And uh, he has to move around a lot Okay, because <laughs> so, there's always someone after him and he's in trouble with the law. He's a true outlaw. The FBI or DEA uh, would very much like to find him. So this, I think like my, the, the 10th Levon Cade novel is now at the editors. So that'll be out early next year. What, uh, what is the big difference you see when you go from writing comics to writing a novel? Um. Well, the interesting thing is, is I found writing prose, you have to describe less for the prose reader than you do for an artist, because you're going to allow them to make up whatever picture in their head they want. Mm -hmm. um, one of my proofreaders said, you never described this guy. And I'm like, yeah, he, he looks like whatever you want him to look like, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing that surprised me, this really surprised me, and it surprises me every time I write one is I get to the end of the story and I go, it's over. I'm at the end of the story and that doesn't happen in comics because right. you know, I got to get to page 22. I got to get to page 48, you know, and you know, but in prose to me, there's no finite ending. It's just, when you wrote it, when you wrote the ending, you realize that's the end. There's no, there's no more story. Right. So I'm going to stop here. <laughs> yeah. Cause the, you know, the comic is still going. I mean, yeah, yeah. It just goes on and on. Well, also the comics kind of, comics kind of have to end with a thud, you know, you got to have that, that last image or whatever that big payoff and right. in a novel, not so much. You can have a little bit of a denouement, which you never see in comics. You know, there's never, you never, you never end with the fantastic four lounging around the Baxter building, you know, happening. <laughs> you know, 
it just ends boom, you know, with something horrible happening. Right. Is there any chance? I mean, you're obviously it's the Levon Kate is doing well. Is there any chance of it hitting you like a Netflix or a movie screen or anything like that? I had it. I had it options as Sylvester Stallone for a while as a TV series. He even wrote a few episodes in the series, but uh, COVID and um, other things intervened. Oh, that's and, a bummer. Uh, got put aside, but put aside, but not put away. Not right? put away, but put aside. So you never know. You never know. That's great. So yeah, I, have, I have a feeling when Amazon has this Jack Reacher thing going, I think if that's really successful, that Levon K might get a second look from somebody. Yeah, that would be really good. I, yeah, I would be good for me. Wish the best, <laughs> and I hope hope for that. Anybody who is um, watching the live stream, they can scroll down on our guest products and click on that. That'll bring you to Amazon. You can find Levon Cade through there. Uh, and all of his other stuff as well. If you are a podcast listener, uh, you can go to the website or you can just look on Amazon and type in Chuck Dixon. It's going to show up. It's it's going to show up. Uh, I want to switch little gears here. You also have a YouTube series. Yeah. And your YouTube series is Ask Chuck Dixon. Because for those that are listening, let's be honest. Chuck's got hundreds and thousands of comic books that he's written and done out there. We can only touch the surface. I actually was writing, I was going through the outline to, today and I was like, you know, there is no way, even if I picked, even if I picked just say Robin or just GI Joe, I literally could write up an entire outline just for one comic. And at the end, I would still feel like I just glossed over that one comic, let alone everything you've done. But Hey, if you want to know more about your comic, Chuck's got this awesome YouTube channel uh, called Ask Chuck Dixon, and you can send in your questions there. Uh, tell us how that came about. Um, well, everybody was doing videos, and I thought, well, let me take a shot at this. And I did a few, and the, the first one I did was um, when the Birds of Prey movies got announced, and they would all these articles talked about uh, the Chuck Dixon and created Birds of Prey. And I wanted to set the record straight because Jordan Gorfinkel, my editor, actually created Birds of Prey. Uh, he hired me to write it because he thought I'd be, you know, have an affinity for it. Right. But so I did a video and, and a lot of people watched it. And then I thought, well, this is a way to promote things for the most part. Right. Uh, and it's more direct than, uh, and I can reach more people than I can on social media. So, and then it was fun. So I kept doing it. Right. Do you do all of it yourself or do you have somebody go in and edit photos and pictures? No, I, do and videos? All, I do all of it myself and it's done live as I'm showing the images. I'm, I'm clicking live. <laughs> so anybody can tell you that every once in a while the phone will ring or I don't do any edits. You know, oh, it's, wow. it's raw. That's and, hilarious. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm on the spot, you know, I'll put the questions together and I'll think about some of them, but some of them I don't really think about. I think about them as I'm getting the images together, but I'm never really sure what I'm going to say. And then I go off on tangents because uh, like I told an interviewer recently, you asked me the questions you wanted to ask, but you didn't ask the questions you didn't know to ask. Right. And so I'll, I'll expound on some things that people ask about and I'll go beyond their question. Yeah. To, 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 you know, people love hearing stories about the comic creators. Oh yeah. Process. So. I know. I know every time I see when I sit down and I'm like, I'll just watch it. I'll just watch part of this video. And then, you know, <laughs> A half hour to an hour later, I'm like, I'm, I'm through a couple videos and I'm like, maybe I should eat breakfast. Oh, I'm sorry. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe not. Uh, I, I was rereading, uh, rewatching a couple of the videos today. And uh, one of them, which I, I, I apparently hadn't seen, 
was this one where you talked about Azriel and kind of his 100 issues that he had and how how that came to be and I was I was floored because I didn't know that that 100 issues was the plan the whole time and I didn't know that uh yeah. being a person again that was another one that I had collected and going wow this is this was you know and that it was set in stone and that there wasn't going to be 98 there was going to be 100 from the get go uh, right. I don't know if you want to retell that little story or not well well basically you know um <clears throat> We come out the other side of Nightfall, and Azrael's still a character. He's on a loose. He's Azrael again. And uh, then he knew he was going to be retiring in a few years. So he made a deal that uh, part of his retirement was that he get right to write 100 issues of Azrael, and, and it could never be canceled. <laughs> so that was his retirement plan. And uh, a lot of stuff like that happened at DC. I never saw that kind of stuff happen much at Marvel. Uh, DC is uh, a very secretive place, and lots of weird stuff would happen. I mentioned this a lot in the videos that mm -hmm. inexplicable things like, why can't we use this character? Graham Nolan the other day brought out to me the creeper, right? We, we were never allowed to use the creeper. We asked over really? and over again. No, you can't. Why not? We can't tell you. And it was like, you own this character, you know? And then I reminded him once that when I was at DC in the two thousands, I said, I want to, I want to pitch this character. And they said, no, we're saving him for Mark Miller. And I said, Mark's under contract to Marvel. And they said, yeah, but he might come back someday. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, DC is a weird place to work. Sometimes weird in a good way. Sometimes it's just weird. Right. And there would be all these secrets and sweetheart deals and things you couldn't be allowed to know. But that was one I didn't feel bad revealing because Denny had passed and he wouldn't give a damn if I told the story. He was proud of the fact that he got that deal out of DC. Right. Well, and I always like, I thought, this would be a great one to just a little spoiler. What can you get on Ask Chuck Dixon? And so that's yeah. kind of why I was like, this is a great little story. Um, while Azrael is not, you know, the most well-known or most popular character of all time, uh, there's still there's still this amazing little story, kind of a, a little backdoor look. And that's kind yeah. of what people get in, in the Ask Chuck Dixon, even though they might just ask, hey, what happened to Jean-Paul Valley? You're going to get this right. amazing little story. So uh, you guys can just look up uh, Chuck Dixon right on YouTube. Just just his name, and it'll pop up. It'll be one of the first ones to show up on there. So it's it's an amazing series, and I hope it keeps going because there's so much fun little nuggets there. Uh, like you said, people like to hear those little stories. So. Yeah, yeah. Is there well, anything else that you're working on or any appearances you're doing coming up? Uh, I'm working on a highly secret project. I'm not doing any appearances. Uh, uh, just kind of got out of the habit of doing that. Yeah. So it's just, just, you know, you know, nose down doing the work. I'm going to start the 11th Levon Cade novel in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, but I got, you know, just, just basically crunching art tunes and, you know, doing the videos. And Do you know when we'll get to know about the super secret project? Uh, probably in the spring okay. of next year. So everybody Dude. needs to go keep an eye on, on. We're actually waiting till it's done. Okay. And then we're going to announce it. So, awesome. Yeah. So everybody can keep an eye out. I, I'm not in the hyperbole, but this will blow people's minds. Okay. <laughs> there we go. It's out there. You are on Twitter at Chuck, or actually at Dixonverse. Uh, Facebook backslash Chuck.Dixon.779, ChuckDixon.net. Uh, obviously Chuck Dixon, uh, ask Chuck Dixon on YouTube. I want to thank you for stopping in. I will thank you for chatting with us. It's, it's been a lot of fun regardless of, uh, the internet's misinformation for me, but Hey, 
That's the way it is. Now it's now it's right. Now it's accurate. We've got the we've got the lowdown on the correct. You set the record straight. I didn't work on Spider Man. You didn't work. <laughs> on, you'll have to put that in your ass, Chuck Dixon. <laughs> I will put, I put it I in will. that like. Hey, you were you worked on Spider Man? How did it go? Uh, no, 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 I didn't. Um, sorry. <laughs> Thank you for stopping by. It's much appreciated. Uh, you've got so much stuff that you've worked on. Uh, hopefully, we can have you back and we can talk about more. Maybe talk about your next project. So definitely, absolutely, uh, absolutely, we'll, we'll we'll get you back for that, ladies sure. and gentlemen. Uh, those listening. Next week, December, not next week, in two weeks, December 27th, we have Robert N. Charette. Uh, he's an award-winning miniature sculptor, an author, writer, creator of the Shadowrun series, Bushido, and so many more role-playing games. So we're going to have him December 27th. He doesn't make a lot of appearances, so you don't want to miss that one. January 1st, Seppi Yoon of Fight in the Box Games. He's going to be joining us. They produce uh, awesome board games such as Hedgehog Hop, Processing, End of the Line, and their new game, Mouse, Cheese, Cat, Cucumber. Uh, it's hilarious. You're just going to have to trust me on that and come on in. And January 24th, the author Delilah S. Dawson. She's worked on multiple Star Wars novels, uh, the Shadow series, Tales of Pell series, which we've talked about on other episodes. So that's January 24th. So make sure to join us for that everybody that's listening to the podcast thank you very much make sure to rate and review us because uh that's how we get our eyes and ears out there or our product out there to other eyes and ears and that's how we get uh eyes and ears on our guests and that's what's important to us so make sure to rate and review us and share us to all of your friends thank you everybody for hanging out with us and thank you for listening to epic realms well there you are I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs>